Good morning again to all of you who are here in this room, and I want to greet those of you who are joining us by video in our contemporary venue or online. I'm glad that you are there in both of our worship venues here on site. We have ushers coming up the aisles in just a moment with Bibles. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up right now or if you want to open your Bible app. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and learning from that this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to borrow one from the ushers today. You can return it in the back of the room in either venue. But I'd love for you to be able to read the Bible for yourself, even gain a little comfortability in finding passages. I'll give you the page numbers when the time comes up. Hey, if you've been part of Community of Grace or tuning in online anytime this last year, you probably know that we've been reading the life story of Jesus in one of his biographies, the Gospel according to Luke. If you've been here before, you've probably heard me say this 20 or 30 times already. We do this in order to understand the life of Jesus, to see what's unique about him, to see how good his life was, and to get a better understanding of what sort of life is he inviting us into. What does it mean when Jesus says to us, come, follow me? What's, what's that life? If you have been following along, you may have noticed that we have been dodging one of Jesus' topics. I've been hiding from it. I'm admitting to you we've been skipping over it or maybe waiting a little bit to talk about it now. But if you've been reading along with one of our reading guides, you may know what it is. It is a topic that Jesus talks about a lot and we haven't talked about it all yet. And it's the topic of our relationship to money and possessions. And I feel like I should acknowledge or just maybe even reinforce, if you're a guest here, if you're new here for the first time, as I just said, we don't talk about this all the time. You may, some churches have a reputation for that, sometimes fair, sometimes not. But Jesus did talk about our relationship to money and possessions a lot. The Bible talks about it a lot. I think there probably are some good reasons for that. On the one hand, it's really a relevant part of our lives. It's a big part of our lives. Our relationship with money and possessions is a practical part of so many of the decisions we make and so many of the things that we do, that for Jesus to lead our lives toward God and never teach about this that's so important in our hearts and actions would leave so much of our lives untouched. And I think the second reason I alluded to just now is because it's such a big part of our hearts, because it's a heart issue more than it's just simply a money or finance issue. How we relate to our finances is a heart issue. In one place, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So on the one hand, it's kind of a diagnostic side of things. If you wanna know where your heart is, you can't really check your heart because your heart might lie to you. You won't really understand. But if you wanna know where it's important to your heart, look at your checkbook, look at your investments. Where, where do I invest? And you go, like, oh, my heart probably cares about that. On the one hand, it's a diagnostic heart issue. On the other hand, it actually helps shape us. It helps determine us. It reinforces the habits of our hearts. When Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, there's a way of saying, if I put my treasure there, if I invest more there, watch your heart follow, right? Whatever you're investing in right now, a year from now, if you keep investing there, your heart will go even further in that direction. Jesus talks about this all the time for important reasons like these. And I wanna acknowledge one more thing before we open our Bibles up again and learn from what he taught. And that is that we have all of our generations with us, right? We have our kids, our teenagers, every generation of adults in different seasons of our lives and different seasons of our relationship with money. And those of you who are younger, our kids and our teenagers, you might think when we talk about money and possessions and finance, that sounds like a grown-up topic. And I understand, maybe some parts of it seem to be. And yet, every time I've seen somebody experience a Christian conversion into a more Christian way of relating to their finances, every time somebody says, I wish I'd have known this sooner. 
I wish I would have realized this earlier, right? I wish I could have started this sooner in my life. So whatever age you are, it is never too late. Today is always the best day. And those of you who are younger, even kids and teenagers, this is just a fantastic opportunity for you. And one of the reasons that I think we think it might be more of a grown-up topic is because it can seem complicated, money and finance. Some of us hire professional people to help us manage our, our finances because it can be that complicated. A lot of us have people help us do our taxes in this season of the year. And there can be things about it that are complicated. But Jesus' teaching is actually very simple. Jesus' teaching is very simple. When I was in college, I remember there was a book that was popular. It was called, Everything I Needed to Know in Life I Learned in Kindergarten. Does anybody ever remember that book title? Or, or at least it sounds very attractive, right? I think as a college student, I was like, right, just kindergarten, that's all I should need. And I don't remember a lot of the things that were in that book, but I remember this one. Uh, one of the lessons that we learned in kindergarten that is important for life is share. <laughs> Share what you've got. One of Jesus' important principles for life in the kingdom, for handling money as a Christian, is share. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But so let's turn right now and read again, learn from the story that Jesus is teaching us from in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We're on page 1535 of these Quest Bibles, and I want to walk through this story with you kind of piece by piece and see how it connects with our lives. So here's how Jesus, it's Luke 16, verse 19, page 1535 of your Quest Bibles. Here's how Jesus begins his story. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple, I'm wearing purple up here right now, and in fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Let me just pause there for a second and observe something about this guy. That phrase, every day, every day, right? Have you ever noticed how you can become accustomed to anything? How you, you, you can get used to almost any situation so that almost anything that you have every day becomes an everyday thing. You know what I mean? Like here's another way to put it. That new car smell fades, right? What, what seems exciting at first, you get used to. You know, you can buy bottles of new car smell to spray in your old ride, right, to make it smell like a new car again because you like it when it's new and exciting and then it's just something that needs an oil change and then it's not exciting anymore, right? I've, I know this with technology. I've got a smartphone that two years ago when I got it was like the greatest thing on earth, and a week later it was normal. You know, like all of a sudden, I'm used to what it can do. New clothes, new outfits, new shoes, pretty exciting for a little while, and then, you know, just one more thing in the closet. The big new house with the more space and the cool stuff and the location and the whatever is really exciting for a while, and then it's one more thing you have to clean and maintain, right? The new car smell, it fades. Anything that you have every day becomes an everyday thing. And this is a hard lesson for us to learn. We continue to try to buoy ourselves up. We continue to try to find comfort, pleasure, happiness, hits, and buying new stuff. And it always works for an hour. And it never works for very long, right? It's a treadmill that we're running on and running on and running on. It never works out for us. And I can relate to this rich man who was dressed in fine linen and purple and feasted well every day. I think a lot of us are in places that would be considered very wealthy by global standards, and yet the stuff that we enjoy ceases to bring us the level of happiness that it should. It's this hamster wheel that it's hard to get off of. I can relate to the lifestyle that he was living and why it was probably unsatisfying. And then Jesus raises the stakes a little bit. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Some of you may know Bible stories about someone named Lazarus who was raised from the dead. This is just a fictional character, not the same guy, just a pretty common first century name. He was covered with sores. He was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
It's a pretty dramatic picture of the difference between the two of them, right? One problem with trying to find more happiness, one problem with trying to find comfort and pleasure and joy and things is that it doesn't work. Another problem is that it increases the suffering of the poor. When we refuse to share, as this guy did, when we think that if we just bring more stuff to ourselves, that'll bring the goodness of life. It doesn't work, and it makes other people's lives worse. Can I stop and celebrate something for a minute? I mean, this is already kind of a heavy way to begin. But you know what has happened recently? I would like to celebrate how you have learned this lesson in many ways, how Community of Grace is a great example of this. Last weekend, you raised about $20,000 to pack about 60,000 people for kids whose names aren't literally Lazarus, but could be in Haiti, people who are known and loved by us, and in some cases not known and still loved. And you saw to it that for at least for a period of time, at least for some people, that they were not waiting for scraps to fall from the table, but meals would be provided. And in a similar way, there's over 150 children in school and orphans there, again, in Haiti at Mission of Hope, who are sponsored by people from this church, who in a sustainable way, day after day, year after year, are receiving education and food so that they can learn and become more productive members of their economy and make a long-term difference. And I just think that's great. I want to celebrate that. And not only far away, but we have a partnership here in the White Bear Lake area locally with the White Bear Lake area emergency food shelf. And last year we participated in an event called Stamp Out Hunger, and that event is coming up again. And this church participates so generously with money and with food and with time and energy. And we're trying to take care of Lazarus, who is among our own church community and among our own neighborhood and larger community. And I just think that's great. And I celebrate how you all have been formed already in many ways by this teaching. And I know that some of you who are listening or might, if you tune in online or hear it again later, you go, yeah, it's good. It's kind of like baby steps, and I bet we could do a lot more. And yeah, we could do a lot more. Yes, we could expand our impact, and I want us to. I think that would be great. But at the same time, at the same time, let's not let the truth that we're not there yet prevent us from celebrating what is happening. I think there's a lot of good happening, and let's celebrate that. And let's keep reading the story and see what Jesus says because now he really raises the stakes, starting in verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham, sort of the great father of the Israelite people, saw him far away with Lazarus by his side, a whole new view of Lazarus than what he'd ever had before. So he called out to him, said, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony here in this fire. And Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Remember how I said this? Isn't that complicated? Good things, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's a pretty dramatic part of the story. And I think one of the great pieces of wisdom that's built into this story by Jesus is to get us to think from an eternal perspective, right? Death is the great equalizer. Have you ever heard it said, I've, I've heard it said, no matter how big your house is, we're all going in the same size box at the end, right? I mean. This is temporary stuff. The Bible teaches us all over the place. There's this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6 that puts it this way. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, But godliness with contentment, that's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, 
and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. We don't bring anything in this world. We're not taking anything with us. Or as I heard another Christian teacher put it, he was telling a story about his kids who were playing a board game with his mother, like their grandma, they were playing a board game together. And they were playing, and during the game, some people are getting ahead and some people are falling behind. And then it went, when it was all done, some of them were a little bit happier about winning, some of them were a little bit madder about losing. If you ever lost a game to your siblings, you understand how it all goes. And she tried to teach them a lesson about this. She said, you know, at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. Do any of you remember playing the game of life? Those of you who are like my vintage, maybe you remember this classic old game of life and you would start and you would drive a car down the road of life, which is already interesting. And you'd go through and you'd get a career and that would determine your income and you might get married and you might not and you might have kids and you might not. You'd run into all kinds of life events. And at the end of the game, I think you came into this glorious place called retirement, right? I don't think anybody ever died or they wouldn't have sold the game probably, but you came to retirement at the end of the game, right? But then at the end of the game of life, no matter how much you earned or how much you had or who finished first or whatever, it all went back in the box, right? And the same thing is true for us who are playing the game of life. It all goes back in the box at the end of the game. And this is a perspective that Jesus has to bring to us because we are so resistant to seeing it ourselves. In our financial lives, I mean, sometimes we're thinking about today or this week or this month. You know, if we can get the bills paid this month, if we can go on vacation this month, if we can do what we need to do right now in the present, that's as far out as we're thinking. Some of us, we congratulate ourselves. We think we're really smart because we're planning decades down the road. We actually are thinking about retirement. Maybe some people are thinking about what's that nest egg that I'm gonna leave behind for my family, something like that. And we think if we're thinking that far ahead, we are doing great. And Jesus says, your perspective is not nearly long enough. Right? And he causes us to think from an eternal perspective. And I think challenges all of us and all the plans that we're making and all the decisions we're making and priorities are setting. That might be wise for this month. That might be wise on the 10-year horizon. That might be wise on the 40-year horizon, maybe longer than that. But is that wise on the eternal horizon? Is that, does that conform to wisdom? Does that honor the priorities of the kingdom of God on the eternal horizon? And one of the things that Jesus is inviting his hearers then and us to do is pick our eyes up from this far in front of us or this far in front of us and to look out at the eternal horizon. Let's finish the story here. This man answered Abraham. He said, then I beg you, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. If he can't come to me, I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. That's the Old Testament of the Bible. They've got the Bible. Let them listen to them. It's all over the place. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the Bible, to the word of God already, they won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. I just imagine Jesus telling that story with like a wink and a nod, you know, or Luke writing it down, even if someone were to rise from the dead. And that's so convicting to me. We've got the whole record of the Bible on this. We've got Jesus who was raised from the dead. And, and, the, and Jesus warns us, they will not be convinced. Are we convinced? Are we convinced by Jesus' teaching on this, by the breadth and the preponderance of biblical teaching on this, by Jesus who taught these things and then God vindicated him by raising him from the dead? Are we convinced about this? It's convicting. While we are convicted about that, let me tell you a 
hopeful version of this story. How many of you know the famous story by Charles Dickens called A Christmas Carol? Do you know A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge and Jacob Marley and Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim? You know, right, so when I think of Bob, when I think of Ebenezer Scrooge, I think of Scrooge McDuck. That's, that's my mental image for that guy right there. Because my kids are getting a little older now, but I watched a lot of cartoons, and so that's my picture of Ebenezer Scrooge. That character, Ebenezer Scrooge, he was such a Scrooge, right? He was such a Scrooge, they made, it out of, made an adjective out of his name. He was miserly, he was cheap, he was mean, he was uncaring, he was unsharing. He was pretty wealthy, he had plenty, but he was not going to share, right? And there was in his life, he was a lot like the rich man in this parable, I think, there was in his life a Lazarus character. His name was Bob Cratchit. I think Bob was his nephew, right? And Bob worked in his office, and he had a job, but it was very low-paying and very poor working conditions, and there was another Lazarus and Bob Cratchit, Lazarus's family. His name was Tiny Lazarus Tim, Tiny Tim Lazarus, whatever his name would be, and he was Bob's son, and he was sickly and ill and, and not doing very well and malnourished and poor, and Ebenezer Scrooge was doing just fine, financially speaking. And then one night, somebody visited him from the dead to warn him. And his name was Jacob Marley, and he was Ebenezer Scrooge's old business partner. They had worked together, and Jacob Marley died an early death. And Jacob Marley appeared to Ebenezer Scrooge in a dream one night, in a vision. And to make a long story of all these many visions short, he came and Jacob Marley was dragging a chain it's big, heavy weight he had to bring with him everywhere and drag it around. That was kind of his torment that he dragged this chain around. And he told Scrooge, I built this chain out of the way that I live my life, which is, you know, we were partners, the way you live your life. And he warned him. He came back from the dead to warn him, your chain will be bigger than mine. It will be heavier than mine because of what you're doing. But he tells him, it's not too late for you, Right? And he shows him two more visions. He shows him a vision of the Cratchit family, of the Lazarus family, and he shows him what it's like in Bob Cratchit's home, and he shows him Tiny Tim. I've heard it said that the, one of the great tragedies about middle-class Christians is not that we don't care about poor people. It's that we don't know any poor people. And Scrooge didn't know what it was like. He had to be shown to know and to feel and to see. And so he took him into the home in a vision, into Bob Cratchit's home. And he saw, and then Marley did one more thing. He gave Scrooge this eternal perspective, this life and death perspective, and he took him to his own future grave. Saw his own grave, saw his own headstone, saw that there was nobody there, and he saw this horrifying picture of his own death. And Scrooge is asking, does it have to be? Is there any way to change this? And the whole logic of Jacob Marley's message to Scrooge is, no, it's not too late. It is not too late. There can be forgiveness for what's gone before. There can be a second chance. There is an opportunity for you to live a different way and become not a Scrooge, but a blessing to other people. And he does, and Scrooge changes. He amends his life, changes his ways. He changes his heart, changes his relationship with people, changes his relationship with money. He becomes generous and caring and changes Bob Cratchit's life and changes Tiny Tim's life and other people around him. And I don't know how much Charles Dickens reflected on this story for that story, but it seems to me he sure well could have. And I think that many of us find ourselves in a similar place where, like Scrooge, we have made some unwise choices, where we have sought joy and happiness and comfort and pleasure where it cannot be found. We got on the hamster wheel of diminishing returns. It's been unwise. In that way, we have not been convinced by Jesus' teaching. We have not trusted what he taught, and we have sinned against him. 
We have not shared with others. We have left, in many cases, Lazaruses outside of our doors, maybe cared for some, uncared for others, and sinned against them where we failed to share. The kingdom principle that we take from all this is that in the kingdom, we share. In the kingdom, we share. And in the midst of all this, I think the whole logic of Jesus' story is there is forgiveness available. The whole logic of Jesus' life is that people who have screwed up in all different kinds of ways are invited into his community in spite of their past to receive life in his grace and to receive the gift of new life that goes a new way. And we have this opportunity to say, I have messed up in this way, or I, I have messed up in that way, and I've, I've found a few, a few kernels of truth in that way. I say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace, and I will follow you in your way of life. In the kingdom, we share. In the kingdom, we share. And depending on where you are in your life, this could take a number of different shapes. We're all in different seasons of our lives. We have different relationships with money. We've walked different journeys. For some of us, it probably feels like we have been doing all we can to make a way for ourselves and we're barely succeeding at that. And so maybe for some of you, you have very little experience with giving something away, with sharing something, whether you're giving to a church, to a charity, whether you're giving to somebody in need. And maybe if that's where you are, maybe your next step is just to allow your hands to be pried open a little bit and experience how much better that feels and experience the goodness that comes from sharing. It's just to drive one stake in the heart of greed and to say, I'm going to make a gift. I'm going to make a gift and give something somewhere. Maybe some of you, probably lots of you, have a lot more experience than that, an opportunity where you have experienced the joy of sharing and giving generously. Again, maybe it's to your church, and maybe it's to a charity you care about, and maybe it's to other people. And you've done that off and on, here and there, in different places. And maybe the next step for you is to find how you can make that a more central part of your life. How you can begin to make a recurring gift somewhere, begin to make a a gift that makes more of an impact on your life. Sometimes those of us who make gifts at different times throughout our lives, we do so in a way that doesn't really impact our own lives. We're able to do it on the fringes. It's sort of like tipping, you know, like it's a nice thing, but it doesn't impact your lifestyle at all. And maybe the move for you is to a different level of sacrificial giving, to be sharing with the Lazaruses, to be giving to your church that raises up people in the way of Jesus and cares for the poor around us, or to other places that you care about or people in your lives. Maybe it's something like that. And I know that there's a whole other group of you that are a part of this community who really do live lives of radical generosity. And you live lives that are exemplary, and you've been an inspiration to me, and I know you're part of this community. And it could be that one of the things that you have to share is your experience, is your story, is your examples, what you've learned about the sweetness of following Jesus and living an open-handed life. And I would never encourage you to boast about your giving. Jesus said something about that too, and heck, you're a Minnesotan. You would never do that anyway, right? But, but it may be that you've learned some things that people who are on the journey somewhere behind you would be able to learn from your experience. I think generosity, sharing, is not only a financial thing. It's our time, it's our energy, and it's our story. It's ourselves. I imagine that for many of us, most people I know, nearly everybody I know, would like to live lives that are more generous than what we actually practice. We just struggle to do it. We don't sometimes know how to do it or know if we're able to do it. And I'd like to just close real quickly by offering you two learning opportunities that I think can help a lot of us live lives that are more like the ones we actually want to live, that we're trying to, hope to live. There's a, a short-term discussion group happening uh, this, for the next few weeks on Sunday mornings during the 10.30 service, perfect for those of you here at the 9 o'clock service. 
and you can uh, stop by uh, during the 1030 service and be part. No one's gonna pry into your financial life. You don't gotta bring your bank statements. Don't do anything like that. But people are just gonna read the Bible together, congregation, community members, learning, uh, and learning how, and learning how to apply the Bible to our lives. And there's another group that we have that uses a curriculum called Financial Peace University, and you've probably seen advertisements for it if you've been part of our church before. It's a nationwide program, and all of our staff, and many of our congregational leaders, hundreds of people have gone through it. And it's meant for all of us who are looking at our financial lives and going, I would like to be able to be more generous. I would like to be able to have more peace. I would like to be in a different place than I am, practically speaking, and it's really great equipping. And you, know, you can learn more about that. There's details available uh, in your worship bulletin and through lots of other venues. But man, I'd really encourage that too. It just kind of addresses the ability that we have at a practical level to live the lives that Jesus invites us to live. When Jesus teaches about money and possessions, it's it's not like 11 secrets to financial happiness. It's not an investment scheme. It's not really, first of all, about the stuff. It's first of all about our hearts. Jesus wants life for us in our hearts, life in relationship with God and life together. It's a, it's a heart issue. It's a relationship issue. It's a discipleship issue. And these things don't happen just because we try harder or employ the right tips. It happens by our cooperation with the power of the Holy Spirit, by Jesus who comes to us in grace and sets us free. And I just want to pray for us and pray for God's work in our lives and our cooperation with what God's doing. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thanks for your grace with us, for your patience with us. Your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And I pray for all of our hearts right now as we engage this topic that feels emotional and hard and heavy for a lot of us, feels a lot of frustration in many of our stories. And God, I just pray for the encouragement of your Holy Spirit to blow into our hearts and our spirits, to lift up our chins and to receive your grace, and to be empowered by you for a life that's different than the one that's imagined by our culture, a life that gets off the treadmill, the rat race, the hamster wheel that never leads to any joy, and knows that there is another track with you, a place that leads to the life that you really intend for us and the kind of communities that you mean for us to be. And you're so gracious with us. I pray that by your spirit you would lead us, transform us, rescue us, and lead us in your way. God, help us to take the next steps that you have put in front of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.